Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6? As we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday morning, we find ourselves just starting Matthew chapter 6, where in the first 18 verses, Jesus is laying out the right way to give and to pray and to fast. And he does so by first teaching his disciples in this section. We've already looked at giving uh, a couple weeks ago. Find ourselves in the section where he is teaching them to pray, but first of all, teaching them how not to pray before teaching them the right way to pray. And so he teaches them not to pray like the scribes and Pharisees. We looked at this last week, but let's read verses 5 to 8 again. And when you pray, speaking to his disciples, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions, as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. And so last week we looked at these verses, and we saw that as Jesus pinpoints the way not to pray, he focuses on two things that were very prevalent, especially through the scribes and Pharisees when they prayed. They prayed very publicly and ostentatiously to be seen by men. That's what they loved. They loved people to see how spiritual they were. Jesus says, don't be like that. You pray in the secret place. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And don't use vain repetitions like the heathen do. Again, that was something that was common to the prayer lives of the scribes and Pharisees. And we talked about what all that meant last time, so you can get the CD if you weren't here, if you really want to dig into that. But now starting in verse 9 and running through verse 13, he gives them a model prayer, which contains all the basic components of right praying. He wants to teach them the right way to pray. So he gives them this model prayer which contains the basic components of right praying. Now, listen, I personally don't believe that Jesus intended for them or us to pray this prayer verbatim. That doesn't mean you can't pray it that way as long as you don't put your brain in neutral and just rattle it off without thinking about it, okay? I know for sure the Lord never intended this prayer to be repeated over and over again mindlessly the way I did when I was in the Roman Catholic Church and went to confession and got my penance of five Hail Marys and ten Our Fathers or whatever. You know, and I put that brain in neutral, I rattle those babies off, and then I'm done, man. I'm out of there, you know. And, but the heathens did the same thing, though, because they didn't believe that God really wanted to help them. They believed that God's were apathetic. So you had to pray, first of all, you had to keep, the pagan kept repeating and repeating and repeating his prayer. Why? First of all, to get the deity's attention. Secondly, to make sure the deity understood exactly what the suppliant was praying or asking for. Thirdly, by keep praying and badgering the, the deity they were praying to, it would wear their resistance down so that they were proven worthy to be given whatever they were requesting. Jesus, your Father in heaven knows what you need of even before you ask. You, know, you don't have to wear down resistance in him to do what's right for you. He wants to help. He wants to bless and so on. So don't use vain repetitions like the heathen or like the scribes and Pharisees or like the Jewish people in, in general who had fallen into that mentality. So I don't believe this was to be prayed verbatim. How do I know? 
The Lord was only using this as a model or a template for prayer, not to be used exactly as he gave it, because in verse 9 he prefaced this prayer with the words, in this manner, therefore pray. Not in exactly this way, therefore pray. And again, I really believe that Jesus intended this prayer to be an outline for our prayers, to be built around. One which we then have to use to develop and personalize our own prayers as we pray to the Lord. And one last thing before we jump into this. We said last time, many call this the Lord's Prayer. But as we pointed out, this could never have been prayed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Because at one point he teaches them to say, you know, and uh, Father, forgive us our sins or our debts as we forgive others who have sinned against us. Well, Jesus could never have prayed that prayer. No, this was really a model prayer for the disciples. We could call it the disciples' prayer. All right? Now, let's read the prayer, and we'll break it down point by point and look at it. We won't get through the whole thing today. We'll finish it next week, God willing. Unless we're raptured, then Jesus will finish it for us. The right way to pray, verses 9 through 13. Jesus said, In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You notice how Jesus started this prayer. Guys, in this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father. Our Father. You know, those words must have shocked Jesus' disciples. I mean, when Jesus taught them to pray, Our Father. I mean, the word Father in Greek is pater. But many believe Jesus spoke and taught in Aramaic. If he did, then he would have used the word Abba which is a word that was used of a little child of their father, we would say, Papa, Papa. Now, you understand these guys. These guys, man, I mean, Jesus was breaking all kinds of, you know, false concepts and everything else, okay? I mean, as soon as he said, guys, pray this way, Papa, Daddy, who is in heaven. Oh, my goodness. I mean, those Jewish men, must their, their jaws must have dropped open. Because in the Old Testament, God was addressed like this, Elohim, which means the strong one. El Shaddai, the mighty one, and Yahweh, the unspeakable word that meant, I am that I am. To say, pray this way, Papa, wow, that was really earth-shattering for them. Why did Jesus suddenly say, when you pray, call God Daddy or Papa, Abba, Father? Was he no longer the powerful, unspeakable, omnipotent God of the Old Testament? Did God change? No, God didn't change. We did. We did. John 1, verse 12, Jesus said, But as many as received him, who the Messiah? Jesus, he was talking of himself. Who, as many as received me. The Father gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. Look, when we gave our hearts to Jesus Christ, we were adopted into the family of God. We are a child of the living God if you've received Jesus Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior. Look, God is still the unspeakable one, the almighty one, the omnipotent one. But because we are his children to us, he is also daddy or papa, which is a term of endearment, right? And I believe in my heart, the reason God 
wanted it that way and wanted us to pray daddy or papa was because he wanted us to relate to him like little children. You know, we get older, we get all analytical, right? All of a sudden now we're all analytical and questioning everything and this and that. When we're kids, we don't question like that. When my kids were small, they never worried about where they were going to sleep, they were going to have a roof over their heads, if they were going to have food on the table, clothes to wear, and they had definitely no problem coming to me asking me for stuff. (laughs) And if if it was good things that wouldn't hurt them, of course, I would be more than happy to give it to them because I love my kids. And as parents, we want to bless our kids, right? And God is saying, look, when you relate to me, I don't want you to lose that innocence. I don't want you to lose that dependency. I don't want you to lose that, you to lose that all-encompassing trust in my character, my ability to provide your needs and to give you good things because I do love you. I don't want you to lose any of that. And if you keep, address me as daddy, maybe you'll remember that I want you to relate to me as, chil- as little children. Abba, Father. So the first thing in this prayer is relationship. Don't miss this. Our Father which implies that this is only a prayer given to those who are children of God. No unbeliever can pray this prayer. No hyper-religious person who doesn't have Christ in their heart can pray this prayer. The good news is God wants all of us to become his children. God is inviting all of us to be saved. You say, I'm already saved. Why do you say that? I, go to, I was born in the church. Uh, that doesn't make you a child of God. To be a child of God, you have to receive Jesus Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior. Going to church, lighting candles, praying rosaries, uh, all that stuff, you know what? That doesn't mean anything to God. It's just dead, empty, religious rituals, ceremonies, and trappings You know that, that people surround themselves with because it makes them feel like they know God and have some kind of a connection with God. But I guarantee you, without Jesus Christ in your heart, you have no connection with the living God. That offends people. And Jesus offended a lot of people because there were many religious people in his day, like the scribes and Pharisees, who were trying to relate to God through their works, their good deeds, their moral character. And Jesus said, if your righteousness doesn't exceed all that, you're not getting into heaven. You need me. That's why I came down. Nobody ever worked their way into heaven by their good works, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven to provide a way by which you might be saved through my faithfulness through what I do on the cross. So God wants all of us to be his children. It's just that until you are one of his kids, this prayer is off limits to you. It's it's not for you. You have no business praying this prayer. Because until you can say, my father or our father, you have no business praying the rest of this prayer. And that only comes through Christ. All right. Then Jesus said, our father, where? In heaven. In heaven, the God I'm praying to is the God in heaven, the one who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. This is my Father. This is the one I am praying to. And you know what? This gets into the area of perspective, proper perspective. You remember, and we lose this perspective a lot of times when we pray. But you remember how that when Peter and John were used by God to heal a lame man, in Acts chapter 3, and that, of course, created quite a stir. And Peter used the opportunity to preach the gospel, and a lot of people got saved. But when word got back to the Sadducees, who actually run, ran the temple area, that's what happened in the temple area, uh, they sent the temple guard to arrest these guys, brought them in before them and said, look, 
we don't want you to preach or teach anymore in this name. Peter says, I got news for you. We have to do the things God has told us to do. We can't help but speak and teach in his name. And so they threatened these guys, well, if you keep it up, we're going to really let you have it. You know, that kind of thing. So they, they went home to the other disciples, told them what happened. And they had a prayer meeting. And this is how they began, Acts 4.24. So when they heard that, all the other disciples heard what had happened. They raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God. You made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. What are they doing? They're getting their perspective back. Sometimes we can let the fear of man or the fear of circumstances be a snare. And our problems become so big because we're so focused on them, all we see is the problem and we lose sight of the one to whom there is no problem. As I've said before, the sun is I don't know how many millions of miles in diameter. But you can block out something that big with something as small as your hand if you just keep it close enough to your face. Our problems are like that. In the whole scheme of things, there nothing is to God. God can do anything. But if we focus on the problem, suddenly it's all we see is the problem. We lose all sight of God. And that's what we are trying not to do in prayer. That's why Jesus wanted us to pray like this. Because he wanted us to take a couple of steps back by first of all acknowledging who God is. Lord, you know, you are God. We don't care what these guys say. You told us to go into all the world and preach the good news to every person. Now, Lord, look at They're threatening us, but we ask for your grace. You're God. You're over everybody. And we pray, Lord, that you will give us boldness. You're the one who made heaven and earth to see all that is in it. I need to do that because sometimes I lose sight of who I'm praying to. Not that I believe that God is less than he really is or that God can't do anything. I just begin to doubt if he's going to do it in my life. Problems often rob us of perspective. Prayer helps us to take a few steps back to see everything in the light of God's power, restoring a proper perspective of things. What am I worried about? God's on the throne. Look at this universe, man. I mean, you know, every time I doubt God's strength in this matter, look at the universe. If he spoke this whole universe into existence through the word of his power and holds it all together by the same word of his power, certainly there's no problem I have that he can't take care of. All right, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Well, you know, God's name isn't hallowed. He's not Jehovah hallowed, okay? I mean, so what does this mean? Well, you have to understand something in the Old and New Testaments, but especially we see it in the Old Testament. When the scriptures talk about the name of the Lord, it's talking about primarily who he is, his character, all that He is with his attributes and all of that. Remember when Moses said to the Lord, Lord, I want to see your face. And God says, Moses, I'm sorry, son. You can't see my face. I am so holy. If I stood in front of you face to face, you would die instantly. I'll tell you what I'll do, though, because they're up on Sinai. You see the cleft of the rock there? Hide yourself in it. You know, with your face to the rock, I'll put my hand over you. All right. I'll walk by you. And as I walk by, I'll take my hand away. You can look at my afterglow. It's the best I can do for you, kid. And so that's what happened, right? And we read about this in Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7. This really, though, shows us what the name of God really means, all right? Now the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there, with Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. Now here's his name. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth 
keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgressions, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Later we would read of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of generations of those who love me. God says, this is who I am. This is my name. Now this is important because we come to the New Testament, we read how Jesus told his disciples, before he went to the cross, the night before, he said, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you can't follow me, not yet. I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you, and so on. He said, in that day you will ask me nothing. But whatever you ask the Father in my name, that he will give to you, right? Now, there's a lot of Christians who interpret that to mean, well, whatever we want, it was carte blanche. God is saying, you know, whatever you want, the Cadillacs, the big houses, whatever big bank account, pray for it, slap Jesus' name on the prayer like a stamp on an envelope, shoot it up to heaven, God's going to give it to you. Because Jesus told you, whatever you ask the Father, in my name. Folks, again, the name there, Jesus was saying, in my name means according to my character, according to all that I am. In other words, if you ask for anything, see, and don't forget this, who was he talking to? The multitudes? His disciples, right? Didn't he already lay out the cost of discipleship earlier in his ministry? What did he say? To be one of my disciples, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Follow me, the one who said, I do always those things that please the Father. I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. That's the heart of a disciple. That was the context that Jesus spoke this in. And he was saying, look, I'm going away. But the work I've begun, I'm turning over to you. You're going to now go out into all the world and preach the gospel and build the kingdom. And whatever you need, I'm giving the context now, whatever you need for the work of the kingdom, you ask the Father in my name. He'll get it to you. He'll make sure you get whatever you need to finish the work I'm calling you to do. But in my name means things that are consistent with my character. Things that I would have asked for had I been on the earth still. Would Jesus be asking for Cadillacs and mansions and everything else? He had nowhere to lay his head. He said, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We have to understand the context, right? Hallowed be your name, all you, that you are. The word hallowed, I think, has been lost in our language because the concept has really been lost from our lives. The word's a Greek word that means to make holy, separated, transcendent. In fact, in the Greek, it's, a, it's in the imperative, which speaks of force, a command. May your name be hallowed or declared holy, exclamation point is the idea. Hallowing God's name begins in the heart through the new birth. But hallowing God's name begins in the heart. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, when he said, Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. The word sanctified is the same basic root word from hall that hallowed comes from, or holy. It's hagias, not hagendas, hagias in the Greek, okay? It's getting towards lunchtime, you're thinking hagendas, that sounds. Hagias, it just means holy, separated, and so on, okay? Sanctified. Make holy is what Peter is saying, the Lord God in your heart. Why? Why does it start there? Because it always starts on the inside if you're a child of God. Jesus said, cleanse the inside of the cup, it will overflow and cleanse the outside also. He's talking about the heart. If, if, if you invite me into your heart, I will do a work of cleansing, which will start in your heart, work its way out into your life. But also, 
What will start is a reverence for God, a holiness for the name of God, which starts in the heart and works its way out into your everyday life. When we sanctify the Lord in our hearts, we will also sanctify him in our lives. The Father's name, by the way, is most hallowed when we behave in conformity to his will. When we behave in conformity to his will. For Christians to live in disobedience, for Christians now to live in disobedience to what God has said, is taking the Lord's name in vain. We often hear that used with regard to profanity. You know, using God's name in a profane way. That's not what that concept means, taking his name in vain. Although, don't use God's name as a swear word. But what it actually means is, and this was such an important concept to God, it made the top ten list of his prohibitions. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. What does that mean? He is Lord. He is supposed to be hallowed, revered, obeyed. That's what his people are supposed to do on the earth. And when we call him Lord, but don't obey him as Lord, we are taking his name in vain. And Jesus said to a group of would-be disciples, not everybody who followed Jesus was a true disciple. They probably thought they were, just like not everybody who comes to church is a true Christian. And Jesus one day turned to a group of these would-be disciples and said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And yet don't do the things that I tell you. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Salvation by works? No. But a proof that saving faith is in your heart because it wants to obey God. I mean, before I was a Christian, I went to church. I was raised in the church. But I lived in rebellion against God. I did my own thing. I called him Lord, but I was taking his name in vain. But once I got saved, once true saving faith entered my heart, it manifested itself in the desire to do his will, to keep his word. Do I always do it perfectly? Of course not. None of us do. But there has to be that desire there. That proves saving faith is in your heart. When Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whatever you do, you know, what you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all in the name of God for the glory of God. He was putting his finger on what it means to hallow God's name. To live in a constant state of reverence and awe of our Heavenly Father. That motivates us to want to please Him. To want to live for Him and obey Him. So our prayers should start, listen, with God, not us. Not with our needs, although those are important. He's going to get to those in a minute. The prayer should start with the person of God. Not with our needs or desires, but with God's person. That's how we should start our prayers. I love Psalm 100 verse 4. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. We should enter the presence of God in prayer, not rattling off our requests and then off we go. We should enter with a sense of reverence and awe and thanksgiving where we first of all bless his name, praise his name, give thanks for all he's done before we ever get to our petitions. So first category, God's person. That's where it all starts. Second category, Jesus gave in verse 10, God's purpose. He first of all said, we need to pray, your kingdom come. This is the first petition of this prayer. But notice, even then it doesn't focus on our needs. 
You say, well, doesn't God think my needs are important? Of course he does. There's other things more important. And that, first of all, is the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching us here that our first concern should not be for our own personal needs, but our first concern should be for the kingdom of God. Jesus would go on to say in this very chapter that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all the other things we have need of, food, shelter, clothing, etc., all the necessities of life, Jesus said, your father's going to make sure you have those things. He knows what you have need of. He created you with those needs. He fully intends to meet those physical needs. Just don't live at the level of the physical. Live at the level of the spirit. Because that's the proper way to live. Consume yourself not with your physical needs, but with the glory of God, with the building of his kingdom. He'll take care of everything else. One author put it this way. He said, and I quote, But how self-centered our prayers usually are. Focused on our needs, our plans, our aspirations, our understandings. We are often like tiny infants who know no world but the world of their own feelings and wants. One of the greatest struggles of the Christian life is to fight the old sinful habits with their constant and unrelenting focus on self, end quote. How true. Jesus is saying, get your priorities right. You want to pray right, get your priorities right. The kingdom of God must come first. That is a twofold application. First, keep spreading the gospel. That's the Great Commission. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. That was his purpose on the earth. And he gave that purpose to us when he ascended back to the Father and said, now go into all the world and preach the good news to every person. So keep spreading the gospel. Number two, keep looking for the coming kingdom that will be established by Jesus when he returns to the earth. I mean, folks, I find myself longing for God's kingdom more in the last few years than I have ever longed for it in my life. And that's not due to any one problem. It's not because of our politicians and all, which they're a big part of it. Uh, it's not just them. It gets into the whole moral breakdown of society, the anarchy that we're even seeing beginning. You know, Mayor Bloomberg, mayor of New York, just yesterday said that be prepared for riots in the streets by young people who are frustrated they can't find jobs after they graduate. There are some organizations that are actually, you go online, they're actually encouraging uh, young people to, to meet at certain places to actually engage in anarchy. This is the world we're living in. In our prayer meeting before church this morning, someone prayed, Father, help the little six-year-old girl that came home and found both of her parents dead in the house. Six-year-old child coming home to finding her parents had been killed by someone. I mean, when you read these things or you hear these things, doesn't it make your heart stir within you to pray, Lord, your kingdom come? The word kingdom in the Greek is the word basileia, and it means rule or reign. Therefore, what Jesus is teaching us to pray is, Father, let your reign over this world come. And the word for come in the Greek means let it immediately and suddenly come, not may it ooze in gradually over time. See, the kingdom of God on earth will not, underline that, will not be slowly brought to pass by electing Christians to political office. Now, I'm not, I have no problem with that. I encourage that. It's a wonderful thing, right? We should vote 
for believers. But I want you to know something. Electing Christians to political office who will then bring policy changes and begin to enact righteous laws, which will they, they believe will eventually usher the kingdom of God to the earth. You know what? That is not biblical. That's not biblical. And it's not going to happen. That's what is called Christian Reconstructionism or theonomy, which is the belief that if we just take over government, you know, Christians get elected to office in such great numbers, we finally take over the government, we can enact the laws that God enacted in the Old Testament, and we can bring God's kingdom to the earth. Well, how did it work out in the Old Testament? Were they transformed into this utopia because God's, they had God's law? They rebelled against God's law. I mean, look at the sad history of Israel. God's chosen people. They had his laws, but his law was not written in their hearts. Therefore, they still did whatever they wanted to do, whatever seemed right in their own eyes, basically. The kingdom is going to come suddenly and totally. When and only when Jesus Christ comes to establish it on the earth. He's going to bring the kingdom. He never told us to establish the kingdom on the earth. As Hal Lindsey said years ago, he hasn't called, uh, called us to clean up the fish pond. He's only called us to fish in it. We're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. That's our mission. When he comes back, he's going to establish the kingdom. I'm not going to do it. We're not going to do it on the earth. Only he can do that. And you can read Revelation chapter 19 as we see the Lord coming from heaven with all of us riding white horses. Coming to the earth to establish his throne on the earth. Establish his kingdom. The first thing he does is he fights against those people. The rebels that follow the Antichrist. That have gathered in the valley of Megiddo with their bazookas and AK-47s and surface-to-air missiles. Because they're going to keep Jesus from taking the throne and bringing his kingdom to the earth. How twisted is that? That you'd even want this world to go on the way it is. And yet, how sick and twisted is it to think you can stop God from fulfilling his purpose? Jesus said the kingdom would be established just after the judgment of God fell. And the judgment of God would fall when the time was like the time of Noah. Just as in the days of Noah, when God's judgment fell. Folks, it's hard for me to believe that the world back in Noah's day was any worse than it is in our day. And anyone who thinks that God brought judgment upon the world back then because of their sinfulness, anyone who thinks that he's not going to bring judgment upon this world that we live in soon, I think is ridiculous. His judgment is coming. In fact, his kingdom is coming. And there is nothing anyone can do to stop it. I mean, it's like a freight train. You better climb on board or it's going to run you down. But either way, the kingdom's coming. The good news is God is inviting everybody to be a part of it. How can I be a part of the kingdom? How can I be a part of what God wants to do on the earth when Jesus reigns by accepting Christ as your king right now? Those of us who have received Christ into our heart as king, we are members of the kingdom. And then someday when he comes and establishes it openly and visibly, we'll be a part of it. But right now, the kingdom has come inside because the king reigns in our hearts. That's how you become a member of the kingdom. And we ought to have a longing for the kingdom of God to come to the earth to replace the evil and corrupt kingdom of man. And if you don't think it's corrupt, folks, I feel sorry for you. You're not watching the news. Uh, it's pretty corrupt. The truth is, many Christians aren't really longing for the kingdom of God 
because they have built a kingdom for themselves on the earth. And they're too comfortable in having too much fun, too good a time, I guess, to really long for the Lord's coming, for his kingdom to be established. Why did Jesus even ask us to pray, your kingdom come? You know, Pastor, you just got done saying the kingdom's coming, whether we like it or not. Nothing's going to stop it. So why do we even have to pray, Lord, may your kingdom come? That's not going to change anything, right? I mean, the Lord's kingdom is going to come. That's true. In this regard, the prayer doesn't really affect what God's going to do. He's going to bring his kingdom. The prayer was designed, that part of the prayer was designed to keep us kingdom-minded. Because the more we pray, Lord, may your kingdom come, the less we're going to build for ourselves a kingdom on the earth, the less we're going to become entangled with the cares of this life. And I think Jesus always wanted us to be kingdom-minded because he didn't want us to get too locked into this world system. He wanted us to keep reminding ourselves this world is rapidly passing away. And as such, we ought to be laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven, not on the earth. Americans are not very kingdom-minded because we have had a nation of so much blessing and prosperity. We've gotten pretty comfortable down here. We have a hard time thinking it's going to be so much better when the kingdom of God comes. And Jesus said, your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. You know, it's been well said, prayer is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done on earth. Man, that is so true. You know how many people actually look at prayer as a way to butter up God? They become salesmen in a sense, and they're going to present to God now why God should see it their way and give them what they want. So prayer for them is getting their will done in heaven instead of God's will done on earth. That's backwards. It turns God into the servant, me into the master. So a lot of Christians have a theology that, although they would never put it that way, makes them Lord and God the servant, who must run around doing their bidding because they've been taught that they can, you know, command with their words and God has to bring it to pass. Look, prayer is all about being a channel through which God can work his will on earth. The Greek implies here that God has already decided what he wants to do in heaven. He's not looking for input from us, all right? He's not looking, Lord, have you thought about this plan, okay? Uh, Could you reconsider this? God said, I already know what I want to do. The only question that remains is, are you going to be available for me to use as an instrument to bring my will from heaven down to the earth? That's what prayer does. It helps us to spend time in God's presence so that his heart becomes my heart, his mind, my mind, the mind of Christ. And I begin to think in kingdom terms, not in selfish terms. Don't you know that God's way and God's will is the best? So why would we want anything less than God's will? You know, it was said of Ruth Bell Graham before she went home to be with the Lord. I mean, this is going back quite a few years. She said that she was glad that God didn't listen to her foolish demands in her younger years, or she would have married the wrong guy about 15 times. (laughs) But she wisely ended her prayers with, not my will, but thy will be done. Is that how we pray? Is that how you pray? Bringing your request to God but saying, Lord, you're so much wiser than I am. I mean, you know, you see the big picture. You know what you want to do, Lord. And why should I have to think I've got to work it all out? I can bring you my requests and ask you to do things the way I think it should be done. But, Lord, 
in the final analysis, you are so much wiser than me. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. I mean, is that how we pray? Because we totally trust God that his ways are best. I've seen people who actually will pray demanding that God better do what they want. And if he doesn't, I'm out of here. Okay, you're going to lose a good servant then, Lord. You don't, you know, if you don't come through the way. And I have actually met many people over the years of my years in ministry who have walked away from God. And I said, well, why is it you haven't been to church in so many years? Well, I, I'm, I've turned off God. I, I'm just off of God. Well, why is that? Well, you know, 10 years ago, I asked him to help me in this situation. He didn't help me. And so that's it. I'm done with God. Well, what do you think gets the worst end of that deal? Then God's going, oh, man, really, really messed up letting them go. Look, God loves you. God grieves when you walk away from him. But God doesn't need any of us. God's self-sufficient. He doesn't need any of us. We need him. In him we live and move and have our being. To say I can, act, I can live independently of God is as foolish as saying I can live independently of oxygen, and still survive. God's ways are best. Paul said in Romans 8.28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his what? Purpose. That's just a, 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 a synonym kind of a statement for salvation. If you are saved, you have been called according to his purpose. That's why we exist. That's why we have been saved. To be God's servants. To do his will. Which is the best we could ever possibly do. As God said in Jeremiah 29 verse 11. I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Says the Lord. Thoughts of peace not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. I'm working for your eternal good. And often will give you many temporal blessings as well. But the point is. You have to trust me. Paul said, and we know that all things work together for good. He didn't say, and we see it all work together for good. The Greek word there is an intuitive knowledge. It's by faith we know it. Because God said he loves us. He is working for our best. We have to trust that. So when you say, God, not my will, but thy will be done, do it with a big smile on your face. If you do it with clenched teeth, oh, fine. Not my will. You know, then, then, you know, you're not really submitting to the will of God. You have no choice, but it's not a happy thing. Jesus taught us that we must believe in the character and wisdom of our Heavenly Father. That He loves us and wants to do the best for us and that His will is perfect. We have to believe that. So, first category when we pray, God's person. Second category when we pray, God's purpose. Finally, we come to us now. God's provision. Verse 11, and we'll finish with this this morning. Pick it up next week. But the first petition that deals with us is found in verse 11, where Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But first of all, I want to focus on those other, the first part of that, give us this day our daily bread. Why does the Lord want us to pray day by day for our needs? Why can't we just sort of give a blanket request, Lord, give me this month my monthly needs, or provide for me this year my yearly bread? I mean, he's going to supply our needs anyways. Why doesn't he just let us, you know, give him a blanket prayer? It's a lot easier on us, right? That's the problem. We're looking for easy Christianity instead of effective Christianity. Look, let me tell you this. 
The Lord wants us to pray daily for our needs because, listen to me, prayer is our greatest need, as we talked about last week. Prayer is our greatest need. You see, the answers to our prayers, as joyful and important as they are, are almost secondary to the time spent in God's presence. That's why he doesn't quickly give us everything we ask for right away. Because the the blessing of true prayer is to spend time in his presence. When that happens, I'm being conformed into his image. Like I said, his heart becomes my heart. His mind becomes my mind. And I'm now looking at life from his perspective, not from my own. If the Father gave us... On a monthly basis, guess what? We'd probably pray once a month. Wouldn't pray very frequently, I know that. He wants us to live in a constant state of dependency upon him. The problem with prosperity is that it robs us of having to depend on our Heavenly Father each and every day. Look, I'm not saying that we should feel guilty of all the blessings that God has given to us in this country. We shouldn't feel guilty. We don't have to pray this prayer like this. Give us this day our daily bread. We have money to provide for our own basic necessities, usually speaking. But even though we don't have to pray to the Father every day for our daily bread, the idea here is to live seeking God for our needs, whatever they might be, and not indulging ourselves in all our wants and desires by putting things on our credit card, we'll say. Okay? Look it. I'm not going to belabor this. I just want to say this, and we'll close. Credit has been a blessing for many in a lot of ways, but it's also been the downfall of many too. I think for the most part, credit has robbed Christians of God dependency. Look, I don't have to pray for my basic necessities. I can put it on the credit card. Oh, yeah, but then I ask God to provide the money to pay the credit card. Well, folks, I'm not sure it works that way. If you depend on credit instead of on God to supply your needs, and you come to God and say, okay, now, Lord, will you just provide the money for the credit card bill? God is saying, you know what? You took things into your own hands. Now you're on your own. If you would have come to me, I would have provided those needs. You wouldn't have had to put it on credit. But because you took matters into your own hands and you have played God, you're on your own. Now, does God leave us there? No, he's trying to prove a point. He's trying to break us of self-dependency. If at any time we recognize what's going on, how that we are not depending on him, but depending on something other than him, credit which becomes a God then, if we understand that, fall to our knees, confess our sins and repent of them, then God steps in and he'll take care of the credit card bill as long as you've learned a lesson. He doesn't want us to go on like that. He wants us to live in a constant state of dependency. Our daily bread, yeah, that speaks of our food, but it goes beyond that. It's symbolic of all of our physical needs. Martin Luther understood that phrase to mean this. He said, our daily bread means everything necessary for the preservation of this life is bread, including food, a healthy body, good weather, because they were farmers, of course, back then, house, home, wife, children, good government, amen, and peace. And Jesus is going to elaborate on some of those basic necessities in verses 25 to 34. So we'll leave most of our comments till then. So we'll end there this morning. God willing, we'll pick it up because the next category that we'll look at is God's pardon, right? God's person, God's purpose, God's provision, God's pardon. Verse 12, forgive us our debts or our sins 
as we forgive those who have sinned or, or owe us a debt is the idea, but have sinned against us. I don't want to rush through that because that is the only statement in this prayer that Jesus actually elaborated on. He did so in verses 14 and 15. So obviously that was a very important concept to the Lord and wanted us to really understand the importance of doing, forgiving others as God has forgiven us. And we'll look at that next time. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Father, because it gives us your truth. Truth that we can walk in, light. That if we walk in, we'll never stumble in darkness, but we will have the light of life. And thank you, Lord, that you are our Father, our Abba, our Papa. And that, Lord, forgive us if we have gotten so big for our britches, I guess we could say, that we start thinking we know so much that we doubt your character, doubt your provision, doubt your power. Father, give us grace to relate to you as children, little children relate to their father. That we might always know, Lord, that intimacy, that absolute trust and confidence in your character and provision. And so, Lord, as we continue to study this model prayer, give us the grace, Lord, to understand what you're telling us here in each category that we could then expand. It's just an outline that we will then, you know, uh, expand upon, personalize, But, Lord, thank you that you've given to us all the basic components of what right praying is all about. We ask all this now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.